Hey, my name's Cliff, uh, Cliff Wright, and I serve as the executive director for the Charlotte Eagles. Um, the Charlotte Eagles started in 1991 as the world's first and finest Christian professional sports team uh, and was Charlotte's soccer t pro soccer team for uh, 25 years. Um, today we use the platform of the world's most popular sport. Uh, what we say is to, uh, to be the key to get through the front door of people's lives, but we really want to be in the living room of their lives. Uh, we probably saw ourselves starting out as ministers to the world of soccer, but we've definitely grown to see ourselves as ministers to the world through soccer. And our missional imperatives are incarnational outreach, discipleship development, leadership launching. Um, and we do this uh, through um, uh, missional living in urban communities, uh, rec leagues we use to reach families, uh, travel teams uh, to, uh, uh, to impact teenagers, semi-pro and college campus ministry for college-age kids, and uh, we even just started a new adult league. Uh, and we're just trying to use soccer in as many ways as we can uh, to see the kingdom of God break in. Um, that's what I do, and I've had the privilege of leading that mission for uh, about the last two and a half years. Um, that's what I do. It's my job, but um, it's not actually what I wanted to do when I was a kid, believe it or not. If I'd known about it, maybe I would have. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, when I was a kid, I loved trucks. Um, and uh, we had a guy at our church who worked for the power company, and he drove a cherry picker, which is one of those that has, like, the arm that goes way up, and you get to stand in the bucket and everything and, and do stuff up high. I thought that was really cool, so I wanted to work for the power company um, when I was a little kid uh, because it would mean I got to drive one of those trucks. Um, that evolved into being a fireman. I wanted to be a fireman after that. Um, then that evolved into being a soldier. I wanted to be a soldier. And then later I wanted to be a professional soccer player slash basketball player slash baseball player slash special forces agent who would get called out of as athletic endeavors to go save the world. Um, and, uh, and would you believe that uh, at 2306 Brant Trace Farm Road in Greensboro, North Carolina, many World Cups were won, many NBA championships were won in the driveway, uh, and many, many lost battles of World War II were fought in the woods behind that house. Uh, historical markers exist. You can see them today. Um, that's what I wanted to do when I was a kid. My wife, Laura, um, when she was little, she wanted to uh, work out the grocery store and be the person who got to scan the, the cans as they went across and then put them into bags because uh, it looked cool and powerful. Um, and she is both of those things. But I wonder, what did you want to be when you were a child? Anybody want to shout it out? You remember the thing you wanted to be when you were a little kid? Yes, nice. It's very specific. Yeah, yeah, drive through outside of Wendy's. <laughs> yeah, hey, it's not too late. It's not too late. Dreams, the dreams don't die. What about somebody else? Oh, yes, riding on the outside of the trash trucks. That's a good one. Yeah, what else? I don't know. Second base, Pittsburgh Pirates. Love that. That's awesome. Um, you know what's funny? Is that, uh, is that before anybody ever told you that you were supposed to do something with your life, you knew you were supposed to do something with your life. That children, uh, before they're confronted with the concepts of making a living or making something of yourself, that the idea that this life that you've been given is something that you're supposed to do something with um, is inherent almost inside of us. I wonder why that is. Let's pray. Jesus, please inhabit these words, um, Lord, I, I pray that they would be quick but not hurried. Um, God, thank you for this church, this church that you love, that you equip, and that you send. 
Um, and I pray that you would use, uh, use these next minutes uh, for the building up and the equipping of your saints and for the inspiring and reviving of our hearts uh, to the things that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, a few years ago, back when it was cool, I got COVID. Um, and uh, if you remember when you first got, when people first started getting COVID, uh, you, would get, you would get quarantined for like two weeks, you know, just by yourself. And, and that's, that's when I got it. Now we figured out you only have to quarantine for like three or four or five days or something like that. But um, I got it back when you needed to quarantine for two weeks. And so the two weeks leading up to Christmas a few years ago, um, I lived in my room by myself and my wife took care of our four kids. Um, it was great. <laughs> um, during that time, uh, I was stuck in the room and, uh, and binge-watched The Mandalorian. Uh, Mandalorian Season 3 coming out soon. Um, I did not grow up a Star Wars nerd, but I have grown into it. Um, and, uh, and so I started off binge-watching The Mandalorian, which is awesome. Um, which led me into watching the movies again. I'd watched them kind of sporadically through my time growing up. Um, and watching those again, and then I discovered that there were these cartoons that were made off of the shows, um, and so I started binge-watching those, um, and then I found out that there were other movies that had been inserted into, uh, into those Star Wars movies, and I watched, I watched all of it. I'm not really a geek now, um, but I do visit blogs titled The Den of the Geek um, to read about Star Wars fan theories and everything. Um, but, uh, of these movies, basically, if you don't know, um, there's going to be a lot of spoiler alerts, but if you haven't watched them by now, then that's on you. Um, so the first three movies that were made were made in like 1977 through 1983. Um, some of you weren't even born yet. And uh, uh, those, those movies were made, and they followed uh, Luke Skywalker, Leia, um, Darth Vader, who actually turns out to be Luke's dad, <gasps> Anakin. Um, yeah, I know, and a guy named Han Solo. Um, and uh, so those three movies play out, but then in 1999, we discovered that the first Star Wars movie was not the first, it was actually the fourth, and that there were three that came before it, and that, that kind of followed Obi-Wan Kenobi and, uh, and Anakin Skywalker in his rise and fall into becoming Darth Vader. Um, and then, if there's three before, why not three after? And uh, through, through uh, the last, like, five years or so, we've been gifted with three more uh, of these movies that kind of follow the, the Skywalkers as they kind of move into a new age of Jedi-ness. Anyway, I'm not going to bore you with it. But so there's these nine movies now that are Star Wars. Um, and, uh, and it's kind of been come to be called the, the Skywalker Saga, those nine movies. But there's these other movies and these other stories that branch off of those nine. And some of you guys are like, he is speaking my language. And some of you are like, I am so lost. <laughs> there are these others that kind of branch off. And uh, one of the best Star Wars movies, like as it's rated, is this movie called Rogue One. And Rogue One takes place like the weeks leading up to the fourth Star Wars movie, which was the first Star Wars movie that's now the fourth. And uh, uh, the whole thing comes off of this line where uh, in, in the fourth Star Wars movie, they say uh, a, lot of like a lot of brave men and women gave their lives so that we could have this information on how to destroy the Death Star. And that movie is about the men and women who gave their lives so that they would have the ability to destroy the Death Star. And it's, a, it's, an, it's an incredible movie. It's a really, really good movie. Um, and, uh, and then... <laughs> some of the characters in that movie Disney has just made a series of 
that branches off of Rogue One. And so Rogue One starts or ends at the beginning of the fourth movie, and then this show, Andor, is going to start and then end at the beginning of Rogue One. And the reason I bring all this up is that all of these offshoots from the Star Wars movie, essentially all of these Star Wars offshoots are meaningful and powerful because of their relation to the bigger story. Like, in and of themselves, they don't have a lot of power, but when they're rooted into an epic, when they're rooted into a story that just feels like it stands the test of time, then those stories, by virtue of association, they, they are able to harness all of that epic energy, all of that momentum, all of that these characters matterness, you know? We're going to be looking at a really big chunk of Luke today. Who wrote the book of Luke? Luke, good job. Really good job. That's the equipped part of the loved equipped scent. So Luke wrote the book of Luke. Now we're really going gonna to take this up a notch. Uh, what other book did Luke write in the Bible? The book of Acts. Great. Um, question. Did Luke know Jesus? Not in the evangelical sense, like you and I know Jesus. Yes, Luke knew Jesus. But did Luke know Jesus? No, he didn't. He was not one of the disciples. He was not like, he, it's, we have no record that he was like traveling around with Jesus and was just one of those unnamed people. Luke was introduced to Jesus by people who knew Jesus or by people who were introduced to Jesus by people who knew Jesus. Essentially, Luke sees himself as, uh, as somebody who's, who knows the God of the universe because some people told him and some people told them that there is this larger story that Luke is now this offshoot to. And if you read the book of Luke, a lot of times if you read it retroactively through Acts, because we know that Luke saw himself in these stories, right? You'll be reading Acts sometimes, and he's talking about Paul, and he's like, and Paul went over there, and Paul went over here, and then we sailed to this place. And you're like, we? <laughs> you're there? Um, so Luke writes himself into the stories a lot of times because, because he was there. He really was a part of this movement. And so if you, we read the book of Luke retroactively through the lens of Acts, we see that Luke has this real, um, uh, real appreciation for and almost a historical tracking of the movement of Jesus from the teachings of Jesus. That, that as people got it, and they, because he's looking at this being like, oh my gosh, the people who introduced me to Jesus, that's where, that's where it got real to them. And Luke chapter 9 is the breakthrough point for Luke as he writes it as to everything that changed everything that eventually changed him. Everything that changed everything that eventually changed him. Um, so uh, there are seven points that I have in the remaining few minutes of this sermon. You might think you're supposed to have three. Seven is also a holy number. So chill out, <laughs> and I'm going to make them fast. Uh, but they also rhyme. The points are this. God saves us to send us. He upends us as he sends us. He mends us as he sends us. He tends us as he sends us. He spins us as he sends us, befriends us as he sends us. And then point seven, which is going to be a mystery. <laughs> so... Um, Luke chapter 9 means that it's the ninth chapter of Luke, correct? Just checking, I'm not a math guy. Um, but which means that how many chapters came before Luke? Yeah. 
Eight chapters, all right? And in these eight chapters, Jesus has called disciples, and these disciples have followed Jesus around. They've been covered in the dust of their rabbi. They, uh, they have been seeing him do things. And think about the things that they've seen. Think about the life of the disciples for the first eight chapters of Luke, all right? They have heard him preach. They've seen him go toe-to-toe with religious leaders and Pharisees. Like, they have, um, they have seen things, all right? Like, they have seen miracles, They've seen, they've seen people, like, stretch out their hands and, like, and be made well. They've seen uh, de- demoniacs, like, who come in and they're like, Aah! and then Jesus says, get out of them, and they're in their right mind. They have, they have heard him teach in parables, and they have sat around campfires with him and had him explain what these parables mean. For eight chapters of the book of Luke, for eight chapters of the book of Luke, the disciples are the greatest youth group kids you could ever ask for, all right? They're the greatest church attenders. You know, some of, like, when, when we met Jesus as teenagers, some of us, um, like, the answer for what we did next was just keep coming around. Just, just stay faithful. Come, get plugged in, right? These are kind of the phrases that we would hear. And, like, so if, it, chances are you're sitting here today in a church because you were like, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be plugged in. And for eight chapters, these guys did that. And then comes this ninth chapter, and everything changes. God saves us to send us. And he called the the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, God is a holy tornado. He does not draw us to himself, but to send us out again. All right, do not glide past verses 1 and 2 in everything that we read. Don't glide past one and two, because this was a major disruption from what these guys' lives had been with Jesus. Up to this point, it was like, just have a front row seat for Jesus. Every time when Jesus wakes up in the morning and walks out, you wake up in the morning and walk out after him. It wasn't until this point. This is the first time recorded that we have since they left their nets and everything that they had to follow him that he's actually sending them away from him. And he's sending them away from them on purpose. You know, what happened in the first eight chapters wasn't a mistake. It wasn't wasted time. It wasn't building action. It was intentional. And then what happens in chapter 9 is also intentional. That God intends to put the missio day, the mission of God, in the hands of the people who follow him. This is a part of it. All right? So he, God saves us to send us. And then he upends us as he sends us. Point two. So he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and don't have two tunics, because just don't. <laughs> two tunics, two tunics, two tunics. Um, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Wow. So, you know, there's these reality TV shows where people get sent out into the woods to live alone. In fact, one of them is called Alone. Um, and at the end of Alone, uh, the person who wins, who can outlast and outsurvive everybody else, will frequently point to one of the seven, like, items that he was allowed, he or she was allowed to bring. And they might say, like, well, I, I brought this shovel that's also an axe, and that's how I survived. Or, like, I had this net, and I set it up in the right spot, and I did these things, and that's how I survived. Essentially, what Jesus is doing as he sends them out is he's taking away their right to be like, well, this is why I was successful. He's essentially saying that, that I'm going to upend you in such a way, I'm going to hold you upside down, essentially, until all the quarters fall out of your pockets that you could buy a bus ticket home with, you know? And you're going to go out, and you're going to discover 
that it's all real. I'm going to make you uncomfortable. I'm going to make you weak. I'm going to make you needy as you step out in power. Crazy. God upends us as he sends us. And it strikes me how differently this sending passage is from the underlying assumptions that most of us have about a life on mission. We tend to think of mission and sentness as something that we do for the Lord. I've even heard people that I've been interviewing before to come in ministry staff, and they've said things like, you know, after all God has done for me, it's just time for me to give something back to him. So that's why I want to do this career. And it's like, you're not getting the job. Because that's the wrong answer. Part of our problem is that we carry around with us this unbiblical definition of ministry that allows us to live comfortably as Christian consumers. We think of ministry in this way. We have our, our own little private lives, and these private lives, they belong to us. And then we step out of those lives into moments of mission and ministry. We step out of our private lives, and then we're able to step back into those once those mission moments are over. The fact of the matter is that since we've been bought with the blood of Jesus, our lives don't belong to us anymore. They are his possession for his use. And this means that our life, our whole life, is mission, and mission is our whole life. You are sent whether you want to be sent or not, North Cross. You just are. That means that we live, work, relate, play, and relax with a ministry mentality and in a mission reality. It means that I am always thinking, and I fail at this at least 35 to 50 times a day, confession, it means that I'm always thinking about how to be a part of what God is doing in the locations where he places me. This means that my connection to the work of the body of Christ is not that I'm the attender of something, but rather that I am a participant in something along with everyone else. I am a part of God's all my people all the time redemptive plan. And the greatest honor of my life is that I have been chosen to be both a recipient of grace and an instrument of grace. This has given my life deeper meaning than anything that I could have discovered on my own. And this is what grace alone can do. You know, it's interesting as an addendum to this note is that God doesn't just upend us as he sends us. He upends the world. As you notice, uh, verses 7 through 9, Herod doesn't re isn't reported to have heard about the, the movement of Jesus until Jesus actually multiplies and sends his followers. That's when the earth starts to shake around him a little bit. Then he mends us as he sends us. In verse 6, don't miss this, just because it's not in red letters. It says, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Did you catch that? It didn't say that they tried to heal everywhere. It says that they did heal everywhere. It, didn't, it doesn't say that they tried to heal and they were successful in some places. It says that they healed everywhere. And they preached the good news everywhere. It worked. It worked. I love to run. Um, uh, as I approach 39 this week, uh, and uh, as I approach 39 this week, um, running is becoming a more of perilous activity for me. Um, as I run, I, I get these, these pulls and little tears in my muscles, and uh, I've discovered this amazing remedy. It's called dry needling, which is totally gnarly and exactly what it sounds like, where they stick dry needles in your muscle in the exact place where it's injured, and somehow it tricks your body into hyper-focused healing that muscle. And so what used to take me four weeks of rest to recover to be able to get back out and run, now takes 24 to 48 hours. 
because they go and they stick these needles in your legs, mine and my calves, and then for a little extra bonus, if you slip them a good tip, they do this for you, um, then they'll, uh, they'll hook up electrodes to those needles and leave them in your legs, and they'll make like, they'll run electricity through it, so it really jiggles the muscle, and it's like Frankenstein. You're like, it's alive! And truly, like, your, your muscle's just going, um, and it, but it works. But you know how I know that it works? It's because 24 hours after I do this, I go out and I run. And I always start gingerly, and I'm always worried about not pushing it too hard, but after I break through that first mile and I realize it doesn't really hurt that much, then I'm picking it up, and the wind is blowing through what's left of my hair. And, and like, I'm going up hills and I'm going down hills, and this is a huge part of my spiritual life with Jesus. I don't listen to music. I just pray and I think. And, like, and I come back, and as I, as I make the run back towards my house, I am always overcome with joy because I realize I've, I've been able to run again without getting hurt. The, the treatment worked. God mends us as he sends us. That as we go out and we embrace our sentness, we discover that it was all real. That this wasn't just some story that we made up along the way. That as we speak the words of Jesus, and as we step out and heal in the name of Jesus, that we discover that it wasn't just a fairy tale that we believed in. God mends us as he sends us. Um, next. He tends us as he sends us. So they come back. On their return, the apostles told them all that they had done, and they took him and they drew apart uh, to a town called Bethsaida. You got to imagine, y'all. I mean, they didn't have cell phones back then. They didn't even have AOL Instant Messenger back then. They didn't have mail systems really back then all that much. You know, like, so these guys, they're coming across, and they have actually done it right? And you've got like James and Peter and they're coming across and they're like, guys, you're never going to believe this. We went to this one town and they picked up stones. They were going to stone us. But then we said, no, in the name of Jesus, well, this isn't happening today. And we told about Jesus and a bunch of them believed. And then we went on and somebody else is like, dude, we went out and there were these folks and this guy came in and we were preaching and he had a demon and he's like, Bleh. and we said, in the name of Jesus, come out just like Jesus did. And it came out and it worked. And they're all coming back with these incredible stories about what they did with Jesus and they're so pumped. And Jesus takes them and withdraws with them. He tends to them as he sends them. He tends to them. They come and they get face-to-face time with Jesus as a part of this mission. There is a special fellowship with the Father that you have when you're on mission him, with him. And I don't mean this that there's some sort of special knowledge as the Gnostics would have said. But I'm just saying that parts of you get exposed to parts of him that they wouldn't otherwise if you just stayed in your comfortable area, if you just stayed in this place of comfortable Christianity. The, uh, the hymn writer Henry Francis Light strikes this balance really well in verse 5 of Jesus, I, my cross, have taken the hymn. It says, then, it says this, Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise or sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within me. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win me. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. Joy. And that in this stepping out, that what Jesus died to win you becomes more real and more full for yourself. Guys, are you starting to get the picture that we don't do mission for Jesus to pay him back for something, but honestly, it's a hedonistic impulse. 
that, that, we actually, that we actually grow, that we were made for this. He spins us as he sends us. Point five, verses 11 through 16. So they all come back. It says, now the day began to wear away, and the 12 uh, said to him, send the crowd away, that they would go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we're here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Um, they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. Jesus spins us. They all come back so excited, and then the worst thing happens. Other people show up, right? Your quiet time gets interrupted by your children. And you're like, hey, I'm trying to spend Jesus time with Jesus so that I can be really sweet to you during the day, and you're interrupting that. This is really intentional. I'm just kidding, Keller. I love it when you come in my quiet time. Um, but, uh, this is a very important mission moment because it essentially uh, debunks the myth that mission is a light switch on and off. Yes and no, do or don't. It's that it's always. It's that it's always, that Jesus was always on mission, that Jesus was always sent. From the time that he stepped foot on this planet, he was never not on mission. He didn't take the vacation. He didn't check out. Makes me wonder why we want to. Um, so Jesus spends them when they're tired, when they think that they don't have anything else. And then he says, well, empty your pockets and give them what you have to eat. And so whatever's left that they probably got as a freebie on heading out of town, some fish jerky and some stale biscuits. It's like a bad Bojangler, which is back for Lent. Um, uh, Anyway, uh, they, they empty themselves out, all that they've got, and then Jesus puts them to work. Now remember, Jesus is Jesus. He could have said, all right, we're going to form the world's longest buffet line. Everybody's going to come. I'm going to pray. I'm going to break this stuff, and then I'm going to feed everybody. I'm going I'm to have that moment, right? You know, they're going to get to talk to pastor. Like, it's going to be great. Except what he does, he says, you have them sit down in groups, right? So Jesus isn't the one who's even directly talking to the crowds. They institute the plan that Jesus has that he's given them. So they're taking the words that Jesus puts in their ears and then relaying them, doing the things. And then he takes the food, he breaks it, multiplies it, spoiler alert, multiplies it and puts it in whose hands? Theirs. He sets them to work again. And if you're really a salty person, you're going to be like, Jesus is quite demanding. But then you realize what these, what these interactions were. I mean, seriously, like, they're walking around into the crowd being like, dude, you are not going to believe this. This was, this was a couple of fish and a, a biscuit. Like, and this is for you. Like, I saw this. We want to be spent. We want to. Like there's this incredible problem with knowing that we have something to offer and not getting to offer it. We want to be spent. And what Jesus has put inside of us is a spirit to be sent and spent. Sorry, too many rhyming words. 
And then he befriends us as he sends us. Verse 17, And they all ate and they were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. What a gift of a friend. Y'all, I don't mean this in a prosperity gospel sort of way at all, but God blesses us as we go in his name. He blesses us. And it's not necessarily, hey, you want to make money? Go be a missionary. That's not going to work, most likely. But God blesses us. There's stuff for us, for us in it. Because Jesus doesn't just have us be cogs in his wheel, because quite frankly, he doesn't need us to be. He can reach Davidson and Cornelius and North and South Huntersville without you. He can reach Charlotte without us. He can reach the world without us. He doesn't need us to do that, but he wants us to do it. He wants to invite us along with him because there's something for us in it. He befriends us as he sends us. And then finally, the secret one. I know you're awaiting. We comprehend as we're sent. For you to understand this, you need to understand, like, Luke didn't write this with the numbers in there. Luke didn't write it with, like, the subtitle headings of stuff. Luke just wrote it. We break it up. So that in your quiet time, this is three days. But this is just one. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And, uh, And they answered, John the Baptist... But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ, the Son of God. And in Matthew 16, 17, he adds, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. What happened? Jesus is literally pointing and saying, a miracle just happened here. Something supernatural happened here. You understood me, and that is supernatural. What happened? They took up the mission of God. Is that they grew in their intimacy with Jesus and their understanding of Jesus, their knowledge of him, and they supernaturally encountered him as they stepped out, as they were sent. And that Peter was forever changed. And Luke probably writes it in here this way because Peter told somebody who told somebody who told a boy named Luke who was in med school about Jesus. And it changed everything for him. We comprehend as we're sent. Y'all, the reason that every child comes up with something to do with their lives, the reason that you knew that you were supposed to do something with your life before anyone told you that you were supposed to do something with your life is because it's one of those echoes of Eden, one of those ridges of the Imago Dei thumbprint that's still on us. Like you see a sports car and you want to go fast. You see a boat and you want to set sail on the lake or the ocean. You see a mountain, and you see how the tree line moves, and you want to climb it. You see a life, and you want to know Jesus with it. You see a craftsman house that makes you want to enter into it, but this life, this lives, uh, these lives that we have are built in such a way as to make us want to use them. And there's three things you can do with your life. You can waste it, you can sell it to the highest bidder, or you can give it away. But of all the things that you can do with your life, there's one thing that you can't do with it, and that's hold on to it. And Jesus tells us 
right at the end of all of this that we've just read in verse 23, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That there is no, there's, you were made to give your life away. You were made to lose your life. And there's gonna come a day that you're gonna take a breath and it's gonna be the last breath that you take and you're gonna close your eyes and then you're gonna open them again and you're gonna see him. And for the rest of eternity, you're gonna run up waterfalls and you're gonna fly over mountains and you're gonna know all of the secrets of the universe and you're gonna walk with Jesus and you're gonna do everything and we're gonna feast in the house of Zion right? There's one thing that you're never going to do again. You'll never tell another person about Jesus for the first time. Be sent. That's what this life is for. Jesus, we love you. Um, God, I thank you for the opportunity to be sent. Um, I thank you that you uh, draw us in to spit us out. Um, God, and that this uh, opportunity of entering uh, your mission, the mission of God. It is a gift. It's not a burden. It's a joy. And Jesus, I pray that you would purify us from fear around it, that we would be instruments of grace in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.